0: The Bible reading for this morning is 1 Peter 2, 1 to 10. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone... God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Pam. Uh, If I could ask you to keep uh, 1 Peter open in front of you this morning, that will will help us. Uh, We're going to spend... time in that passage and in some others uh, near and around. I'm just going to continue to pray uh, that God would uh, give us eyes to see the truths of His Word and hearts that are soft uh, to the work of His Spirit. Can you join me as we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a speaking God. Um, Lord, that You are a God who pours forth words and Your Word is powerful. You tell us that by Your Word, You created the heavens and the earth. You're a God who brought form out of chaos. Lord, by Your Word, You not only brought creation and us into existence, Your Word came in flesh and dwelt among us and showed us what You are like. Heavenly Father, we pray that Your Word and that Your Spirit would be known by us, that we would be listeners to it and Lord, that we would be changed and transformed by it. Pray that I might speak it faithfully, that we might understand it, and Lord, that you would uh, be at work amongst us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been, uh, it's been a while, actually, since I've preached, and uh, you might be happy about that, you might be unhappy about that. <clears throat> um, but... Um, but over the next few weeks, uh, myself and Kieran are going to be starting a new series, and this is kind of this morning um, the preamble to a four-week series. You'll hear more about that uh, in a moment's time. But um, I was thinking about what would be most helpful in the lead-up in this kind of one-off introductory sermon, and uh, landed upon this passage in one Peter, and uh, and it reminded me of a number of things. But before we get into that passage. Um, Earlier this year, as some of you know, Heidi and I had the opportunity to go, um, in fact we were sent, to, um, to a place called Marble, Colorado and, in, uh, and Marble, Colorado is famous for um, a few things but one thing uh, is, is for the marble that is quarried there uh, and, I, uh, and I found this tiny little uh, stone, it was actually in a basket near the fireplace in the place we were staying and, they could, and we were allowed to, um... anyway, we are allowed to take it, I didn't steal it. Um, <laughs> But one of the things I never thought to do was actually work out actually how much I did actually bring back um, in terms of weight. And there's a number of things we could do. Um, So zero out my scales. Um, I can tell you that 87 87 grams. um, So hold that thought, 87 grams. And if you took a tape measure, uh, you could measure the width of it. And uh, 60 mil, widest point... Yeah, 55. So, we could get a piece of string running outside. We could do the circumference of the thing. We could drop it in water and find out its displacement. We could, there's a number of things that we could do to work out how how much, um, how big, how heavy this little stone is. Um, and now, why would we do that? Well, I mean, why would you do that? Um, but what, what's interesting is that when um, when you have a kid, you do exactly that. Um, um, my. <laughs> My oldest kid now is 17, and this is his baby book. Uh, if you've had kids, I don't know how long these baby books go back, and I don't know if they're still using them. Do we still get baby books? Do they look something like this? Yeah? Still blue? Blue baby book. And in it, it records tons of stuff about your child, and, uh, and you, can, you go through every week by week until you, you know, birth weights, and then when you're out of hospital, you, you know, you rock up to the health clinic, and they tell you different things. And so, um, yeah, Sam's attending a new... Um, uh, what do you call it, a new group, parents group, so that's good, uh, he's four kilo. no he's, yeah, he was four kilos and then he's 6.6 kilos and then it tells us that uh, he's got solids by, um, when's that, the 12th of the 6th on the year that he was born, I'm going to review that in two weeks. Oh now there's actually information here about constipation um, and the need to give extra um, boiled water and maybe dil- maybe you should actually come reduce the solids for a time, there you go, good to know that happened for him tells you when he was weaned, tells you, a, tells you a ton of stuff, right? And then you get to the point where he's three years of age and then nothing. Page after page of absolute zero. In fact, there's a whole page in this book that has, uh, I'm sure this stuff might be recorded elsewhere, but my child's development, early milestones, and none of them are ticked. Not one. So we could do it this morning. Has he, does he smile? Does he hold a rattle? Does he laugh? Does he play peekaboo? Does he say mama or dada? Uh, is he dry by day? <laughs> I, I assume. Actually, he's actually wet most of the time. Um, but you, you see, we, 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 mapped, we mapped our son's development intensely for several months and then, and then we stopped. we anticipated that he was going to continue to grow as would the other kids that we have and in fact the truth is uh, they they did do that And, and we monitored it nowhere near as closely as we did at first but growth and proper development we believe is important when you have a child in fact we get very worried if we don't see those things happen if the weight isn't being put on or if uh, the head is not the right. So there's, there's, there's all these things that we look for and, and sometimes those things are terrifying we don't, when we don't see things developing as they should. So it's interesting then when you look to the New Testament and you see the same emphasis, emphasis on growth when it comes to our Christian lives. Uh, what's interesting actually is that often in the New Testament when it wants to talk about the growth of those who follow Jesus spiritual maturity, it often talks about that in fairly negative terms. Uh, For example, in in Hebrews, in chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews is um, is wanting to educate those listeners about just how incredible God is. And in order to do that, he's going back into ages past and he draws upon this uh, ancient figure of Melchizedek. He's mysterious. And just as he's getting wound up about this figure and all that it means... He then stops and he remembers that the people that he's writing to haven't grown in their faith. And so whilst they should understand what he's talking about, they don't. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The writer of Hebrews is upset at the lack of growth that's happened. And so as Paul, when he comes in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 3, he's talking to the church in Corinth, and he says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for, yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. And that's hard to hear, isn't it? Imagine being the listeners to the writer of Hebrews or there in Corinth and you're told that you've got stunted growth. As we go through the baby book of your spiritual growth, you're still an infant. In fact, there's the expectation we should have moved from, solid food, from, from, from liquid to solid food, but, but in fact, you still need the milk. Stunted growth, a problem for the early church. Uh, but, But God's Word wants us to know that it's not just a problem that's back then, but it's a constant issue for those who are in Christ. It's a problem that we experience in our own lives, the pursuit of growth and yet we wonder, have I grown? Have I put on spiritual muscle? See, as a dad, I'm concerned about my kids' growth. When they were little, I did anticipate that they would develop. In fact, there was times where I suspect I was obsessed with the growth of my kids and their development. But in many cases, we might be equally unconcerned about our growth in Christ. We may not be concerned about it at all. But God is greatly concerned. He actually sees it as the logical trajectory of the Christian life. That if you have come to know Him, that you would grow in Him. And so that brings us to the passage in 1 Peter, where Peter urges us to grow. He says, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you might grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good." So he's presupposing that you've come to an understanding of who Christ is and that that, that it's good, that this is actually something that can sustain you for this life and the life to come. You go back and read chapter 1, how astonishingly good the Lord is. And he's saying, if that's what you've come to know, you've got an appetite for that. Well, if that's the case, then, like a newborn baby, crave... Unlike the other two passages that I read a moment ago from Hebrews and Corinthians, where they're lamenting the lack of growth, this passage is actually positive. It's actually wanting to encourage. It's actually saying, let's start over. Let's go back and think what it is to actually lay the foundation rightly and crave that good milk that would sustain you, that you might indeed grow up in your understanding, in the knowledge of God and of His goodness. He's encouraging them. Crave it. And growth is the idea at the center of it. If you were to crave it, then as you came to that spiritual milk, I'll think about what that is in a moment, then you ought to anticipate growth in that. He doesn't want them to be stunted, but to grow up and to be strong and godly and robust, sound Christians. And when you look at where he starts in that, he says, before he says craving of the spiritual milk, he says, there's things that you can anticipate that you would leave behind, that you would rid yourself of. Um, And see, that's the thing that happens with kids, isn't it? There's things that as you watch them grow, they they leave behind. The question that's in that little booklet about, is Sam dry by day and then dry by night? It's to say that, has he left behind the nappy? Or is he at 17 still in the nappy? Well, I can... Well, you know, you can ask him... No, don't ask him yourself. I did ask him if I could use him for this illustration. But you see, he, he, he left it behind. He rid himself of that. In the same way that you would rid yourself of the training wheels and of, uh, of the other things that we might leave behind. The nightlight and the teddy and the... Leave behind malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. It's saying, how are you going to think about others... And how are you going to think about yourself? In fact, that identity formation project that you have that actually is able to lie and to live one way and then another way that might live, aping someone else's existence or pushing someone else down, leave that all behind. Grow up. Grow up and shed those things. Instead of living like that, crave something else. And we'll come to think about what he's talking about in a moment, but just for, for, for the sake of context, see how this fits within Peter's argument. When you go back as far as verse 1 of, chapter, of, uh, of this book, in chapter 1, you see that Peter is addressing his readers as strangers and aliens in the world. It's the idea that they are those who live in exile, someone who is not from around here, who's a foreigner. Someone removed from where they belong. Like Israel was taken from where they belonged into exile in Babylon. And they had to live in that place, but they weren't from around there. And the practices and the culture and the thinking and the politics and all, they weren't from around there. They were strangers in exile. He picks up that idea in verse 17 of chapter 1. You might want to run your eye there and have a look. He says in verse 17 of chapter 1, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Chapter 1, verse 1, You're exiles. In fact, from verse 13, he says, live then as exiles. Live in a distinct way. Live a holy life because that's who you are. That's the identity formation that you need to have established. You are an exile, you're a stranger in this world, so be what you are. And of course, that's always a challenge, isn't it? Is that the way that you think your, uh, yourself, as distinct and, and not of this world in that way? It was, uh, was already mentioned th- this morning about the royal wedding. I, I actively avoided uh, the royal wedding and I was priding myself on the fact that I'd watched none of it. And I did. I watched none of it. And I tried to avoid six days of absolute drivel on most news bro- broadcasts. And, 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 and I was really successful. I woke up this morning, though, and, I, and I, uh, I don't even know. I didn't even see anything or read anything. But I sensed that I'd missed something. So I kind of just thought, well, I better see what she wore. I better, you know. And, but, but the thing that I read was lit up. Uh, not about the dresses, not about any of that. It was lit up with, uh, with the sermon that's been made reference to already with uh, Bishop Michael Curry and his wedding address. It's fantastic. So the only part of the royal wedding that I have watched is the 15 minutes where he preached. Uh, it's, it's all over the place. If you have not watched... I was almost not going to preach and just put it up because if you have watched it, then my sermon this morning is just a waste of time. Like, it, is, it, is, it is a great thing. He does a fantastic job of preaching the gospel. It's, so, please watch it, or um, we'll screen it at morning tea. Um, but Bishop Michael Curry um, there at the royal wedding, and there's the royal couple. And of course, there's a question, isn't there, for the royal couple as you look at them? How will they behave? Did they behave like a royal couple yesterday? Did, were some of the antics that you might have expected at a wedding uh, there? And, and, no, it was all very proper, I suspect. I didn't hear of any scandals. Or, but it was all as you might expect. It was very royal. Earlier this week, I heard the story of uh, the Queen Mother, the the Queen's mother, who died several, well, quite a few years ago now. When our present Queen, uh, Elizabeth, and it's her sister Margaret, is that right? (laughs) This is how much I care. Uh, When they were little children, when they were little children, the Queen Mother was setting them off uh, to go to a party and the chauffeur or the driver or whoever it was uh, listened in To what was said to the children as they were sent off to a party. Now, what do you say as a parent sending your kids off to the party, right? Well, what's the queen mother going to say to these little princesses as they go off to the party? And she was overheard to say, royal manners for royal children. Off you go. Royal manners for royal children. That's right, isn't it? What's she saying to those kids? You be who you are. And yesterday we would have seen that in spades. People, Great dignity, it's a royal situation, we're going to behave as we are. In The Lion, The Witch in the Wardrobe, the story that C.S. Lewis wrote, there's a time where Aslan says to the children, and they're just kids, but they've come to understand about Narnia and about the king, and they've come to place their faith in him, and they are now declared that they are sons of Adams and uh, Adam and daughters of Eve. They are the kings and queen of Narnia. They don't look like it, they look like little kids but they are declared to be the king and the queens of Narnia. And Aslan says to them, once a king or a queen in Narnia, always a king or queen. Bear it well, sons of Adam. Bear it well, daughters of Eve. And as the story of uh, the lion, the witch and the wardrobe closes, you see Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy, these little kids as they are, Kings and queens of Narnia. And Aslan's command to them that they were to be then what they always were, to live in the light of their identity. You're a king, Edmund. You're a queen, Lucy. Be as you are. Royal manners for royal children. And that's what Peter's saying. Do you know your identity? Be as you are. You are exiles. So live as exiles, be what you are. But, but he doesn't just say that's what you are, just only an exile, an outcast. In fact, you are so much more than that. If you jump to the end of this passage, to verse 9 in chapter 2, you see five clear identity markers for the Christian. Look at verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's your identity? Chosen. That the God of the universe has chosen you. And irrespective of what the world might say or your friends or your family or whatever it might be, when God looks upon you, he says, I have placed my choice upon you. Not because of anything that you've done. Just like Israel, I just laid out my grace and mercy upon them. Elected to receive my love. Chosen. Royal. It's not just that I've given you a lowly status. In fact, I've set you aside in a regal place. In fact, the place is a royal priesthood that has access to me at any time. Come before the holy God, for you are a royal priesthood. You are holy. In the sense that you are set apart for me. For the purpose for which I have created you. You are owned by me. You are my people. You bear my name. And you have received mercy. You've been mercied. You might not think yourself regal or chosen holy. But when God looks upon you, he says, I do not give you what you deserve. Instead, I give you mercy. I give you that which you don't deserve. And what you do deserve to be ostracized from me has actually been taken away from you. And you have received mercy. You've got the clear bill. You've got the welcome. So that all those other identity markers can be seen to be true. That you are chosen and royal and holy and owned by God. And of course the challenge then is actually to think and believe ourselves to be that. To actually grow up and mature into that understanding of who we are. To have that as our resounding identity. Because Peter is saying, be who you are. Be holy, live in the light of that, exile strangers in this world, knowing who you are and to live like that. How are you to do that? He gives two pieces of advice. You see them back in verse 13 of chapter 1. The first part is to say, do not conform to this world. Look at verse 13, 14. Therefore prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. The, The first part of verse 13 might be lost a little bit in translation. It literally says, gird up the loins of your mind for action. Very few of us speak in those kind of terms, but in New Testament times it made perfect sense. Uh, Men and women both wore long flowing robes and if if you wanted to be cool, that's a great design. If you wanted to do any kind of physical activity, it's terrible. So in order for you to run or to move about quickly, you would gather up the skirting and you would tuck it into your belt, you would gird up your loins so that your legs were unencumbered and you could run with ease. And that's what Peter is saying to his listeners here. He's saying, get your mind in gear. Put your runners on and get ready to think. Paul will talk about the process of renewing your mind. And then he goes on to tell them how they should think well. He says, realise that you are children of God. And are aliens, and therefore put off the behavior that characterized your life before you became a child of God. Put off the ignorance, put off the evil desires of this world, and live as obedient children. He says, You're a child of God. Be what you are in your mind. But of course, our minds flooded with other thoughts, isn't it? About who we are and the things that are important, the things we've got to do and the way we'll think about ourselves. And... But Peter's saying, you have to think rightly about who you are. As a child, as an exile, as a chosen one, be who you are. Don't conform to this world and this pattern around us, but instead do conform to God's will. Verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. That idea behind the idea of the, the idea behind the word holy is that idea of being set apart. So God is holy, He's He's different and other from us, set apart. And the thing that makes him holy is his moral perfection. He's always intensely loving goodness and he is always intensely hating evil. He is holy. And Peter is saying that's what we need to be like reflecting that holiness. And you do that by not conforming to this world around us and everyone else, but by being holy and set apart. And of course, that raises a question for me just how different am I? And sometimes, and sadly, not very different at all. And that's why God's word is so powerful, isn't it? Because often I'm indistinguishable from the world around me. And Peter's saying, well, it can't be so, can it? He's saying that we need to realise that we're exiles here, strangers, and so we must live that way. We, We must not be the same as this world around us. We must be different. And then he goes on to give you the reason for that. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from this empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. He doesn't have a very high view of this world around us, does he? But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. See, what what Peter's saying is, listen, you think the world is something that you ought to conform to, but but listen to what was given up that you might receive this new identity and this new hope and this new purpose. It was an astonishing sacrifice. It is no smaller thing that you are strangers and exiles in this world. You were born again into a living hope through an incredible and costly thing. It cost God the death of His only Son. We were redeemed and purchased and set apart for God's use, not by a few perishable things and rusty coins and tattered notes, but purchased by Jesus' blood being shed for us. That He was crucified on the cross and underwent the punishment for our sins that we might be cleansed and made clean, that we might receive mercy. And so Peter says, be what you are. Live, because look at the cost. And how does your life reflect that which was given for you? He set you apart by his death. Does that impact us? See, see, imagine that you're alive because someone else stepped in and protected you. In some event, I googled that idea, injured in the rescue. How, how often does that happen? Where someone's in a situation and someone rushes in to, to rescue them out of the fire, out of the sea, whatever it might be, and they're injured in the process somehow. And I was trying to find a good illustration. The, the, the tragedy of that little sentence is that it happens sadly all the time two kids swimming and a whole bunch of people dive in to rescue them and the kids wash up on the shore and the lifeguard is dead there's a teacher in the classroom and there's a man with a knife slashing at the children and the teacher stands in front of them and bears all of the scars until that person is arrested and not a kid is hurt there's a fire and the firemen rush in and they sustain third degree burns and they've rescued the family you can go on and on and read those stories and then suppose for a moment that at a later time years have gone by and that little child has grown into the woman and the man and then they're visited by the person who did the rescue and they're still bearing the scars some of them are physical but a lot of them are mental And they ask them about their life and they discover that the person's just without hope and doesn't care and just kicks along in life. and, And don't you think that the person that had put that kind of sacrifice to rescue that person would have some kind of right to say to them, really? That's what you did after I rushed in? That's how you lived in light of that. And of course, all of those stories, as tragic as they are, pale when you consider what Christ has done for us. The one who gave up his life, the one who was sinless and died. And Peter is saying, it was a costly sacrifice. Live in the light of that. As aliens and strangers, as exiles, live Don't waste it. He gave you this life and this new identity. He gave you hope and a purpose, not for just this life, but for the life to come. Hasn't that impacted you today? Hasn't that changed the way you'll think? Hasn't that given you the capacity to be done with the things of this world? Well, how do you get that perspective? And and Peter's answer to that takes us back to where we begin. He says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you might grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's told us that we are to be like strangers, that we are to be holy, that we must be what we are. And now he tells us how to go about doing that is by craving pure spiritual milk in the same way that a baby craves normal milk. And one thing I learnt early as a dad is if a baby is hungry, you know about it. And so does everyone else. If a baby doesn't grow, it's generally not because they don't crave food. They crave it. In fact, it's true not just for babies. Teenagers crave it as well. But they'll cry and they'll complain until someone feeds them. And Peter says, that's what we need to be like craving pure spiritual milk so that we could grow. So desperate is the need for the little child that they will cry out until it's given to it. So desperate is the believer in Christ that they need to stay, not conforming to this world and listening to that and craving the things of this world, but craving those things that come from the very mouth of God, hungry for that word to be spoken that they might be fed. Crave it, he says. God wants us to grow and he tells us that the way that we grow is through feeding upon his spoken out word to us. Listening to the way that he has instructed us to live. That's what Peter means by pure spiritual milk. You see it all the way through this passage that he's saying, listen, give your ear to God's word, be hungry for it, crying out for it, loving it and lapping it up. If you want to grow in holiness, you need to break the stranglehold on the world around us. And so drink in God's word and allow it to be the thing that indeed changes our minds and in turn changes our behaviour. Is that a craving that you've got for God's word? Peter says, but actually there's more. He tells you that this growth that happens as we gather around this speaking God and loving Him and worshipping Him and listening to Him, it happens best in the context of community, in God's people gathering together like we're doing this morning. If you look at both, of the side, both sides of that command to crave pure spiritual milk then you see that on one side there's a command that we are to love now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers and sisters, love one another deeply from the heart. That's verse 22 of chapter 1. Then you get the command to crave. But it's saying love is to be one of those aspects of holiness that we're to grow up into. But it's also a means by which we grow. It, it, we're shown the, this by the fact that Peter goes on to talk about that as we come to Christ, we're being built into a living temple that if you're going to love, you can't just love in isolation, that you've got to love within community. But if you're going to grow, you won't grow in isolation, you've got to grow in the context of community. And so in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through through Jesus Christ. It is significant that as Peter's talking about growth, that he goes on to talk about this building that God is building, this living temple made up of living stones. And that idea doesn't happen just in this passage. It happens throughout the New Testament. In fact, everywhere in the New Testament that it talks about the growth of believers, it's talking about it being done as a corporate thing. When it talks about you being a chosen people and you being holy, it says "yous." It's plural. We just don't do that very well in English, unless you're from—I won't say—but if anyway, <clears throat> it's the advantage of the Bogan language, isn't it? That they can do the the the, 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 the second person plural. I was going to say first person plural. That "yous" collectively, us together—it's never just looking at the individual. It's something that we do together and it is entirely countercultural. It's just not the way that our Western individualistic society thinks. In our society, we are taught to go it alone and to do our own thing and to be rugged individualists. And then we can take that upon ourselves and think that we're just following Christ on our own and completely isolate ourselves. But Peter is saying to us here that we grow within the context of community. And, and see, God doesn't want us to be little babies in Christ all our lives. He wants us to grow up and to be strong and mature and solid believers. And we, we, as we do that, we need to crave His Word, understand it and live in it and learn it, but we do that in the context of the church. For the next four weeks, we're going to be thinking about that. And that's why this is a precursor. I want us to see that God has set our identity so firmly in His Son Christ and the way that we know who we are, it isn't by external observation, it's by listening to the God who speaks it clearly to us and has demonstrated it powerfully through Jesus' death and resurrection. Do you know Him? Are you craving Him and to listen to Him and to know His Word and then to realize that He draws you then, all of us, as individuals, collectively, together. And that he does something astonishing when that happens. So, Kieran and I, over the next four weeks, are going to be thinking about what it is to be the church and a member of that, part of that, what it is to be the body, the building, the bride, all of those ideas that we have. Next week, um, I'll be beginning the series by looking at why the church and then why this church. But as we finish this morning just notice the image that we're given here as you come to him the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by god verse 4 of chapter 2 chosen by god and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ See, says scripture, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Living stones. It's such a weird image, isn't it? Uh, it it's as stupid, really, as, uh, as weighing the stone and thinking that it's living I've had this stone now for several months. It sits on my bed head. If I thought it was a living stone, ah, well, I would be concerned that one day it would outgrow the strength of the bed head and fall and crush Heidi and I in our sleep. I have very little fear of that taking place. But maybe over the course of the last half hour or so, it's changed in its weight. And no, it hasn't. Exactly the same. Uh, Who was surprised? Honestly. No one, right? No one actually anticipated that its weight would increase. If I was to take the tape and measure it again, the measurements will be exactly the same. That stones are just... Well, they're just nothing, aren't they? just sit there. But, But when Peter wants to talk about living stones... He's drawing on upon a very powerful image out of the Old Testament about how God is going to build His temple and His people. There's something incredibly solid about a stone structure. But these stones aren't inanimate, inanimate. they are living stones. That they're active, that when they gather collectively together, they build something astonishing. And that's what God's purpose for his church is. That those that are exiled, called out, feeling like they are disparate from everything else that's going on in the world. No, no, they have this incredible unity that has drawn them together. They've come to the capstone that holds them all together. They're built on one foundation. And this new temple where God takes up residence in us to live out our lives. Not as inanimate stones, but living stones built into a spiritual house, offering spiritual sacrifices, which is Peter's way of saying, don't waste your life. And it's most crash. You'd say, don't just get stoned. Just numb to this world and distracted. But alive to him, recognising the strength that he offers And that he is doing this building work. So over the next four weeks, as we think about what it is to be the church, it does need to begin with thinking about who we are, each one of us, before God. Have you come to him? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Do you know your identity in him as an exile in this world, but also as one who is... Chosen, who is royal, who is holy, who is owned by Him, who has received mercy. And are you craving Him? That use all would grow. That we, as His church at this time in this place, would be that place that's offering. Spiritual sacrifices to a world that is longing to know and find its identity. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever heavenly father we pray that we would like newborn babies crave spiritual milk that we would crave you lord would you be at work in the renewing of our minds lord we so often pollute it with the things of this world that we're trapped ensnared but you call us to rid ourselves of those things to leave them behind and grow up in our salvation in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who loves us, and that we have indeed received mercy, and that what we have been called to is no small thing. Our Heavenly Father, that you, Lord, redeemed us from this empty way of life by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and defect, Lord, it's through him that we believe in you who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so, Heavenly Father, would you have it that our faith and our hope is established in you alone. Help us to be exiles, foreigners in this world. We ask for your enabling. In Jesus' name, amen.